you're tuned into the Chug LLP's podcast. We are a full-service legal, immigration, and tax firm with a global outlook. We partner with businesses to deliver innovative, customized solutions to their most pressing challenges. Join us as we tackle some pertinent issues. Hello, everyone. My name is Ariana Gonzalez, and I'm the Client Services Manager here at Chug Attorneys and CPAs. Please join me in welcoming partner and attorney Dia Matthews from our Edison, New Jersey office. Hi there, Dia, and welcome. Thanks, Aria. Look forward to the conversation with you. Thank you for being here. So for today's topic, we're going to be talking about visa options beyond the H-1B cap selections. Before we begin, just a quick disclaimer. This conversation is for informational purposes only and does not create an attorney-client relationship. So please comment your questions below or email us at info at and we'll be happy to help you out. So let's get right into it, Dia. We know that so many people have filed for the H-1B petition and few people have been selected. So let's talk about the options that people have if they haven't been selected. So let's say someone's H-1B petition doesn't get picked in the lottery. What's the first thing they or their employer should do? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, Ariana. So this is, you know, this is something we've been, I guess, addressing the last month or so. So many people have been disappointed with the results of the H&B lottery, right? Of, you know, I guess about 750,000 registrations. And of that, a very small percentage got selected. And, you know, now they want to know what the other options are. But ideally, this conversation should have happened before the lottery itself, right? Because we know that the chances of selection are going down every year. So if an employer and a foreign national are serious about looking at continued work authorization for the individual in the U.S., then they should really be planning on, they should be prepared with some backup options, right? And so that's what we will talk about today. There are some other visa options, some other pathways which might be helpful. The H-1B is, and I like to you know use this, the H-1B is really the McDonald's of the visa options, right? But again, you know, if you don't get selected in the H-1B lottery, then you have to look at the other options. So, you know, I guess the first thing we tell people is, you know, you could always, unless you're from India or China, unless you're born in India or China, you could uh, look at uh, applying for residency, right? The green card application itself. And that takes about, I would say, if you're doing a labor certification based, you know, then there's the, it takes about two to three years, I would say, or maybe about two years. The EB-5 is also a reasonably good option for most people, including people from India, especially if you utilize the set aside or the reserved categories uh, for rural and unemployment, you know, high unemployment area projects. But otherwise, you know, it's the it's the temporary visa options that we have to look at. I see. So you mentioned that the alternatives for the H-1B, if that's not an option, people can look into green card and the EB-5. Are there any other visa categories that skilled professionals should be looking at or are those the two main ones that you would recommend? Yeah. So apart from the green card categories, and I think we have a few other videos of recordings on it. But today, I think we'll focus on the work visas, right? That are alternatives to the H-1B. And there's, you know, plenty of them, right? You have the whole alphabet soup. You have the visa categories from A to Z, pretty much. But, you know, in terms of the practical, realistic application, 
Today, we'll talk about a few and thinking, you know, we can talk about cap exempt HMBs, E3s, TNs, all of that. So should we get right into the work visa options? Yeah, let's dive into the work visas and see what you have to share on that for us. Okay. So the cap exempt H-1B, right? And what do we mean by that? So it's pretty much an H-1B, the same as an H-1B, just that you are not going through the H-1B lottery for that, right? So certain uh, organizations, like if you're a university or a research-based nonprofit, for example, you can actually sponsor H-1B visas without going through the lottery, right? The advantage is when you don't have to wait uh, till March to, and put in the whole registration application, you can file the H-1B application sorry, petition, I should say, any time of the year and ask for an immediate start date. So as I said, typically this is used by, you know, universities, educational institutions, higher educational institutions and certain uh, nonprofits. Um, what's great is that you can also apply under this category if you have, if your organization is not a university or a nonprofit, but has an affiliation with a qualifying university or, um, you know, university hospital, for example. If you have a documented affiliation with these organizations and the foreign national is going to be spending the majority of their time at the, you know, university or the nonprofit, then you could still apply in the CAP-exempt H&P category. Okay, so that's a great option. It's also helpful to know that if you, once you qualify for the CAP-exempt H&P, you can in parallel concurrently also work for a regular employer who's not, you know, not really cap exempt. So you can have, you know, concurrently, you can have both these petitions. And I, you know, this is something I, of course, not every employer is going to be able to sponsor a cap exempt uh, H1B, but, you know, this is something depending on the kind of work assignment uh, you have, uh, it's, it's worth looking at. Okay. The other one, and again, this is, you know, kind of, it falls within the whole H&B umbrella. You could also look at for people who have Singapore or Chile citizenship, right? You could also look at H-1B one uh, option, which is you have a certain number of H-1B visas set aside every year for nationals of uh, Singapore and Chile. And this cap or this limit is uh, rarely reached. So this is also a good option for people who might have those citizenships. And then again, the, uh, you know, kind of uh, similar to the H-1B, you have the E3 for Australian nationals. So that's also, you know, fairly straightforward, simple application, the E3, and there is no quota or anything any time of the year. So you can, you can apply uh, with an immediate start date any time of the year. And the last one is the TN visa, which is for Canadian citizens. So with TN, there are a certain number of occupations. It's not that, you know, any kind of position will qualify for a TN. The requirement for the TN is the applicant has to have Canadian citizenship and should be looking to come and work in the U.S. in a job that falls in one of the listed categories. But it's a pretty wide list. So there's a lot of professional occupations listed there. And so that also works out well. And it's a pretty cost-effective application as well with the TN. That's great to know. Those are some great options you provided. So let's talk about the IEP or the startup visa. I know you have some information on that. If you could share that with us, I think that'd be really helpful. Yeah, great. I'm glad you asked that. So the IEP, as you might know, Ariana, is a relatively newer type of option. It's not really a visa. It's a, it's a parole. It's more like a permission to stay in the U.S. and work. It was launched, I think, in 2017 or so, officially, and it stands for the, the International Entrepreneur Parole. Uh, we call it the IEP. 
And this was meant to be for startups, right? Because we have a lot of the U.S. is, you know, is very big on innovation and we wanted to have a path for uh, startups uh, to be able to, you know, to be able to hire good talent. Because many of these startups were actually being, you know, founded by people who are here as students or, you know, some sort of work, a temporary work permit. And so, you know, we wanted to look at options for them to continue and, you know, work for the startup. So it was started, as I said, in 2017 or so for a long time, you know, especially with the previous administration, you know, there wasn't much going on. They were not adjudicating these cases. And then with the recent change of administration, with the Biden administration, you know, they actually put out guidelines and they, you know, they uh, affirmed that they would uh, adjudicate these cases. So that, uh, you know, the the good thing is that, you know, you have pretty much, you know, what we could call a, a startup visa or the IEP. But, you know, the adjudication timelines, uh, time frame has not yet been released by USCIS. So we don't know, you know, uh, unfortunately, we are not seeing so much use of the IEP as we anticipated. So, uh, you know, I guess what I would tell clients is that you could, you know, you could look at the IEP as an option, but in terms of adjudication, be prepared, you know, for some exceedingly long timelines, unless USCIS, you know, changes their policy. Okay, but, you know, back to your question, you know, what what does it take? So it's really for the startup world, right? And so you have to show that the sponsor, the employer is a, is a startup and a startup is defined as a not as a business which is not older than five years and should have, you know, the and the foreign national or the applicant should have a substantial ownership interest in that startup. I believe it's, uh, there's a requirement of, you know, owning at least 10% in the, in the startup. And we have to show that the startup has potential for rapid growth and job creation in the U.S. So one of the ways USCIS, one of the defined metrics from the USCIS is they look at how much funding the startup has actually raised in in the last 18 months or so and so you know you can you know you can demonstrate that by showing that you received venture capital funding of uh, 250000 or so in the last um, 18 months you know prior to making the application or you can show government funding and if it's government funding the you know threshold is a little less it's about 100000 so if you can these are the main requirements and there are some additional ones too but at a high level, if you can demonstrate that these requirements are met, then you potentially have a good IEP um, application. Okay, so this is a, a great option for people who have been here as students, or you know, you know, they have a brilliant idea. They you know they want to uh, start some sort of business, uh, and if they you know they have an ownership interest and they've raised external capital, then the IEP is um, is a viable option. The IEP sounds like a great option for entrepreneurs who want to come to to the States on that visa. So, so far, we've talked about the cap-exempt cap H-1B. We've talked about the H-1B one for Singapore and Chile. We've talked about the E-3 and the TN. And you just spoke to us about the IEP or the startup visa. Do you have any other types of visas that you would recommend on top of all of those that we just covered a little bit? Yeah. Uh, as I said, you know, there's a lot of visa options out there, but not, you know, every everything is a good fit uh, for everyone. With uh, the H-1B visa, for example, I believe about 70% of that is used by applicants from India, uh, followed by China and then the other countries, right? So if you are from India or China, then in terms of the options, it gets to be a little limited. But these days, uh, we are seeing a lot of you know requests for O-1 visa. And the O-1 is for people with extraordinary ability. It's, it's not for everyone. You have to show that you've done something 
exceptional in your field and that, you know, you have, you are recognized in your field, right? So the O1 is also, you know, something I guess, I guess worth looking at. We would evaluate the applicant and see if there is enough to make a case. Sometimes we tell people, hey, you know, you don't really have a very strong O1 case right now, but, you know, you could maybe work on your resume a little bit, uh, establish some more credentials, and then, you know, we could look at uh, doing the O1 for you. The O1, again, if you qualify or you're nearly qualified, then it's a good option because there's no annual limit. You and you get, a, you know, three-year approval, and that can be extended in one-year increments without any uh, limits. So, but you have to show that you have some sort of extraordinary ability. And how do you show that? That really depends on, you know, the kind of field in which you, you know, you claim to be the expert. Typically, we would ask for, you know, publications. We would ask uh, ask for your, how many times you've been cited. Can you get recommendation letters from experts in the industry? Have you won any major awards? If you, you know, got a very significant award, then that, you know, really might be all that you need. But otherwise, right, then you might need to show a combination of different factors to, to prove that you are really top of the line in your field. So we, you know, we work on recommendation letters. We ask for people to produce, show whether they've been invited to speak at conferences, uh, publications, all that goes to, goes into filing the O1 application. So the O1 will take some time. You know, it's not something that you can really, you know, file tomorrow. <laughs> Uh, it takes some time in terms of preparation, two to three months, I would say. But uh, the good thing is there's premium processing uh, available. So, you know, you would get a decision fairly quickly. So the O1 sounds like a great option for the people who who would qualify for that. So if you are thinking about that, if you do think you might qualify, make sure you're verifying with your attorney. Make sure you are eligible for that and you can come on the O1 visa. What about the J1 visa? Do you Do you have any info on that one? Yeah, the, the J1 is also good mostly for uh, training assignments. So, you know, you would use the J1 for if you're coming here to, let's say, undergo some training, if the assignment that you have in the U.S. involves some sort of training, right? Either you give training to other individuals or you're, you you want to undertake some training. And with the J1, you would work with a sponsor agency. Uh, there are many accredited agencies that work as uh, sponsor uh, J1 sponsors, and they help you with the paperwork. So... It's important. The J-1 is, again, not a very long-term visa. It's usually for 18 months or so. There are limits to that. But as long as, you know, the primary purpose is uh, some sort of training, the J-1 is also uh, a good option. That sounds like a great option. So let's get into the E-1 and E-2 visas. So how do the E-1 and E-2 visas work as H-1B alternatives for those who are looking to trade or invest? Yeah, those are part of the, the treaties that actually the, the authorization for the E-1 and the E-2 visas come from the treaties that the United States has with different countries. Unfortunately, India and China are not parties to that. So, you know, if you're from India or China, you would not qualify for the E-1 or the E-2 visa. It used to be that sometimes clients from India would say, hey, you know, we really want to utilize the E-2 visa. And they would, you know, they would apply for citizenship of other, certain other countries, you know, like Grenada and Turkey and um, the, with, the, with the understanding that once they get the citizenship of those countries, they would then qualify to apply for the E2. So that, you know, we've had people who've done that in the past, but with a recent change in the law, that's no longer possible. I mean, it's not feasible because in addition to having the citizenship of the other country, like a, a country like Grenada, for example, 
the U.S. government now requires that you should also have resided in those countries for at least, um, I think, three years before you qualify for the E-2. So it's not just getting the citizenship of that country. You also have to show that you had domicile or you had residence in those countries for at least three years before you apply for the E-2. But anyway, I mean, if, you know, the the vast majority of countries do uh, qualify for the E-1 and the E-2. And it's these are investment-based visas. So we'll talk a little bit more about the E-2. The way the E-2 works is that you show that you're coming to the U.S. to set up a, a business here. And you should have invested in that business and you should hold a significant shareholding in that business. And, you know, the application usually comprises a business plan where you show how your investment amount. Typically, you know, we recommend investments of 100,000 or more. But, you know, you could, depending on the kind of business, maybe you could do more or less, a little less. But, yeah, you have an investment and you demonstrate that your investment will help you run this business. The business plan has to be, as I said, you know, has to be done very carefully. Uh, best to work with a professional for that. And you show that you will actually run, come here and run a successful business. The good thing with the E2 is that you don't need a very big type of business. We've done the, we've used the E2 for very, you know, small businesses like laundromats and uh, restaurants and, uh, you know, smaller operations, cleaning services, uh, things like that. So it's a good option. As I said, again, there has to be an investment, at least um, 100,000 or so. But again, it depends on the kind of business. If you are planning for a very high capital intensive business, then you obviously need to invest more. And you demonstrate that you're coming here to run that business. That's very helpful to know that India and China are not eligible for the E2, but most other countries are. So if you are interested in trading or investing, make sure you're looking into that visa option. So we talked about a few visa alternatives from the H-1B. Are there any perks, Dia, that, that these alternative visas offer that the H-1B visa doesn't offer? Do you have any insight on that? Yeah, again, it depends on the kind of visa, obviously. The biggest advantage is that then you are not having to be at the mercy of the H-1B lottery and be filing in March for a potential start date of October in the same year, right? With many of these visa categories, you can ask for an immediate start date. And, you know, they might also offer you the ability to work for, you know, have a broader based employment. You could, you know, run your own business like with the E2. So I guess the main thing is you, you're not going through the cycle. You can ask for an immediate start date. So it sounds like there are quite a few benefits to all of these alternatives that people should be looking into um, and knowing that there are other options from the H-1B. So let's say someone starts with with an alternative visa. If the H-1B cap improves, are they able to switch? Is that an option? Oh, yeah, that's a good question, actually. So I guess what you're asking is, let's say somebody comes on a different visa type, like an E-2 or an L-1, can they still apply in the cap? Yeah, so the, you know you can apply in the cap every year. And depending on how you want to structure it, do you want, if you are successful in the H-1B cap and you actually get selected and you wish to apply for a change of status in the U.S., then you could file your H-1B petition as a change of status. Or sometimes clients like to have the H-1B as a backup option, or like they just want it in the back pocket, then they might consider applying for the H-1B petition seeking consular processing so that they can continue in the U.S., in whatever visa status they have at the moment. And then, you know, they can choose when they want to activate the H-1B, right? Because the H-1B petition has been approved as consular processing. They would not really get to H-1B status until they 
you know, apply for an H&B visa at the consulate and then re-enter the U.S. in H&B status. So, you know, there's different things you can, I, I guess there's a little bit of planning that you can do once you get selected in the H&B lottery. So you talked about those individuals that want to be extra safe to make sure that, that they can stay in the United States. So is it possible or even advisable to apply for more than one visa simultaneously? As long as you are qualified for that visa time, there is, you know, really no limitation on applying. For example, you know, the same person could qualify for an H&B as well as an L1 visa, right? You can apply and, you know, you can have those uh, visa visas stamped in your passport, I guess. But it's important to remember you can only have one visa status at any point of time in the U.S., right? So you might have a B1, B2, a visitor visa. You might have uh, an H1B and you can have an L1 visa, right? Three different types of visas theoretically um, in your passport. But anytime you enter the U.S., you have to choose one, right? So you would be allowed entry in one specific status, and so you have to decide which you know visa type you're going to be using for that particular entry. And uh, sometimes you'll also have the situation where you apply for a visa at the consulate and the consular officer might cancel a prior visa. So, and it's done without prejudice. They'll actually say, you know, cancel without prejudice. So sometimes that happens, although really the consulate shouldn't be doing it, but happens. That's great info. So we've had some clients reaching out about EB1, EB2, and EB3 employment-based green cards. Are these viable alternatives to the H-1B visa? Yeah. So as I mentioned at the beginning, you could, with instead of applying for these temporary visas, these work permits, work visas, you could apply for the uh, permanent residency or the green card directly. Now, because the you know the applications, the petitions typically will tend to be for prospective uh, positions. So an employer could, you know, very well sponsor a foreign national for one of these applications, employment-based uh, uh, residency applications, EB1, EB2, EB3, etc. even before the foreign national is in the U.S. working for them. It makes sense as long as you understand the timelines, right? Unless you are from India or China, the timelines are, you know, not terrible, I would say. EB1 uh, category, which is, you know, the, the first priority, that's current for most countries, for people from most countries, except for India and China. EB2 and EB3 also are not, you know, terribly backlogged. But uh, so if, if you don't mind, you know, that wait, the processing time plus the, you know, uh, retrogression, which, you know, might be a year or so for most other countries, then it works. But if you are from India or China, then the green card applications will still take some time. So you just have to plan accordingly. So it sounds like we have to take into consideration the different processing times for, for these alternative visas, as well as, you know, depending on where they're at, you know, the processing time might take a little longer. Maybe there's premium processing available. Is that an option for some of these visas? Yeah, the good thing is now, in fact, in the last one year or so, the premium processing options have expanded significantly, right? So with most work permits now, you have the option of premium processing, H1s, L1s, all of them. But, you know, it's it's also sometimes it makes sense to not choose premium processing. And that's something that should be discussed with the, with the immigration advisor, practitioner. For example, there might be child status protection issues, CSP issues. So where you actually want to take advantage of the time that USCIS takes to adjudicate the case. 
So there are certain situations where premium processing might not make uh, the most sense for you. And so it's, you know, it's helpful to take that into consideration. But yes, otherwise, it's generally a blessing that there is premium processing now. That's great to know that, that more countries are, are getting on that premium processing and allowing people to use that option. So we talked about all of these alternatives to the H-1B visa. Are there any potential drawbacks, things that we need to look out for when choosing these visa alternatives over the H-1B? I think the answer to that is, again, going to be it depends, uh, because most of these visas, as you can see, they come with their own nuances and peculiarities, right? With the J-1, for example, the J-1 visa is a good option for a lot of students, people who want to do some sort of, you know, research in the U.S., uh, training, etc. But some of these J-1s come with the requirement, the home country residence requirement, which basically means that after completing the J-1 tenure in the U.S., the applicant has to, the foreign national has to go back and spend two years in their home country, right? So that's for many applicants, that's a drawback and they don't they don't want to entertain that. So it's, you know, I feel it's best to discuss these things proactively with your immigration practitioner before you get into it. With the H1 and the L1, there are timeline limitations. The H1 you normally would hold for six years unless you get to a certain a stage in your green card processing before the six years is up. Then the H and the L time runs L times run against each other. So there are many such nuances. And so it's, you know, it's always best to discuss these upfront with your practitioner before you apply for them. Thank you, Dia. Those are some really helpful things to keep in mind. So make sure if you are considering these visa alternatives that you are talking with your immigration attorney, they can guide you through the process. Make sure you do it right the first time so that you're not stuck in this loop of having to fix things. And, you know, it gets a little difficult when when you don't start off correctly. So make sure you are talking to your professionals. We're here to help you if you need anything. Reach out to us anytime. I think that is all we have time for. So thank you so much, Dia, for spending your time with us and sharing your insights with us. This does bring us to the end of our conversation. And if you have any questions or suggestions, please feel free to send us an email anytime at info at and we're happy to help you out. Until next time, stay safe and take care. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our work, please visit our websites at www.chook.com for legal and immigration and www.chook.net for tax. Be sure to subscribe to get regular business insights from the Chook LLP team. 